I would like to start this cold open purposefully because this episode um, and going forward, um, Ella Hubbard has left the show <laughs> and she has been replaced by Dr. Ella Hubbard. <laughs> <henceforth. laughs> so proud of you. Oh Hi, I'm Dr. Ella Hubbard. I am, I'm more confident than her. I'm sexier. I'm smarter. <laughs> And most importantly, I'm more qualified. Let's go! Wow. Oh my god. Let's go! <laughs> Let's go! Drop that theme song! <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Let's Learn Everything. Hello. Hello! <laughs> Hi! Hello. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Great start. Amazing. Amazing start. Hi, and welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn anything and everything interesting. This episode, we'll be uh, trying really hard not to break whilst Tom and Ella giggle. We will also be doing a science topic, covering a question, and covering a miscellaneous topic as well. My name's Caroline, and this episode's main topic is going to be some of... The Science of Homosexuality. Oh! Controversial. Controversial, and this episode should just make it out in Pride Month. So, topical. Appropriate. Yay! Woo! Woo! My name's Tom, and today's question is, how many songs can you fit into one gram of DNA? Oh, how fun! (laughs) You may think that's an Ella question because of the DNA, but I will show you why it's a Tom question. When Um, we get to it. Not right now. Okay. I was about to start answering the question then. (laughs) (laughs) We've only been doing this for like nine months. I know. Figuring out the the layout. (laughs) We're suddenly saying hi when the the intro starts. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Ella and I'm doing today's miscellaneous topic, which is niche sports. Ooh. Ooh. That should be quite fun. We've not really spoken about sports. Have we? No, but so. the niche modifier means I think I can handle this one. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow that makes it that makes it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't niche. <laughs> it's going to be tolerable. Perfect. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to add a little bit of a disclaimer that this is not going to be about arguing if homosexuality is good or bad. None of what I'm going to be saying is an argument for it in either way. But it so, is good. So. It is. But it yeah, is I was going to continue with, uh, everybody here is either a member of the LGBTQ plus community or is an ally. <laughs> Imagine if you said almost everyone here is in the LGBTQ plus community or an ally. What if one of us wasn't an ally? That would be... Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Obviously. Secretly, can you guess? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, don't make people guess oh, that. That's the next no. Patreon content is Ooh, which one of us is it's, homophobic? Um, yeah. No, it's also true. I, I don't It's Tom. I don't think it I don't know if it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not It's funny because you whispered it directly into the mic, which we can hear. <laughs> you whispered so it to perfect. us. Um, but it's true, I don't know I don't know if it's it's ever explicitly come up. What? what? As in, we've as we have we ever discussed it? Which ones of us are gay yeah. and which ones of us aren't? We've not like explicit. Do we want to have a little moment to share 
how we all identify. I'm happy with that. If you guys, you, we don't have to. If you guys, only if you guys want to. I don't mind. For pride. I'll start. So, um, first off, oh, I have no clue what label I use. Typically, I use bisexual. <laughs> I don't know if that's accurate or not. I'm one of them. Um, and I'm also non-binary. I use they, them pronouns. I am also bisexual, I guess. I also don't really know how to label that. I normally just say queer because that's a bit easier. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I'm cisgendered, so she, her. And I am a straight cis guy, he, him, who was a part of his high school's gay straight alliance, which is what we called it back then. Oh, nice. <laughs> Tom is an ally. Yay. So yeah, I think it's pretty safe to say that any form of homophobia is not tolerated in our community. So if you want to make any meanie comments after this episode, we're just going to block you, my Meanie. Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... With that little disclaimer being said, like, I, I have a feeling we're going to be making some jokes suggesting, like, maybe that we are making arguments for, or not necessarily against, for, like, <laughs> homosexuality. Like, that's not necessarily what we're doing today. We're just talking about, like, evolution and... This is the gay agenda! Like it's the gay agenda! <laughs> we're putting gayness into science, bitches. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's dive right in. First, actually, let's not. First, I have to give some definitions um, because a lot of papers don't actually refer to things like homosexuality and heterosexuality in their papers. Hmm. Can you guys think of a reason why they might do that? Especially when we're talking about things like animal studies and stuff. I honestly oh. have no idea. No, yeah. So Monk et al. 2019 did a really, really nice summary in their paper, which is titled An Alternative Hypothesis for the Evolution of Same-Sex Sexual Behaviour in Animals, which is well worth a read. It's very accessible. Like, that section is very accessible. Um, but essentially, it boils down to not wanting to conflate human sexuality right. with non-human sexual oh. behaviour. That makes, that makes sense. Perfect yeah. sense. So wow. sexual, yeah. or sexual orientation, much like things like gender identity, are categories based off of self-identification and are terms that carry a lot of nuance. Right, right. Sometimes that potentially could apply to animals, but definitely not always. Yeah. So instead we use terms like same-sex sexual behaviour or different-sex sexual behaviour. Um, so if, I, if we refer to, like, an act being homosexual or something like that, that's what we mean today for the most mm -hmm. part. Um, so that's just worth pointing out. And a lot of literature does the same thing. So the place I want to start today is homosexuality in the animal kingdom, because that's where a lot of the literature starts as well. So do you guys have any clue how many species we've observed same-sex sex in? Oh, man, a ton. Yeah, yeah. My, so I'm going to steal this from a friend of the show, Deaths of Wikipedia, Annie did a live show, and at one point she quizzed the audience about which of these Wikipedia lists was the longest. Oh. And there were several, and the longest was animals that have displayed homosexual behavior. It's a long list. It's a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. I would say, like, most mammals. There's just something about mammals that gives me that. That's gay vibe. We're all a bit gay in the mammal kingdom. Wait, is that true? Yeah. Uh, 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 is that a real pattern? So actually, it's pretty spread across the animal kingdom, which is quite cool. Everything from like crabs and um, shrimp and things like that, right up until apes and things like that. So 
It's it's really, really widespread. Is the word we should be using here homosexual or same-sex? So I think if we use either, we mean same-sex sex. Okay. Especially when we're talking about animals, it's same-sex yeah. sexual behaviour. Okay. So the number we currently have is at least 1,500 species. Oh. Wow! With around two-thirds of those being observed for the first time in the last 10 years. No fucking way! If you look at articles from around 2012-ish, they state around 450 species. No And now way. it's so much higher. It's because they were looking for it before. Absolutely. So this is a thing wow. that I'm going to mention in a little bit. Like, in the past, when we've observed same-sex sexual behaviour, it's entirely been either an accident or chance. Because it's really hard to get animals to, like, do gay shit on purpose, you know? <laughs> and I, I mean, I wonder if there is a portion of it that is just, you know, a, a, a lack of recording it or finding it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, writing it off in the data, like not even recording it, possibly. Or possibly not even being aware that the two individuals you're watching are of the same also, sex. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, the implication of that is that 1,500 is a low estimate. Oh, if yeah. It, if it's been growing that much in the last 10, ten years? Mm -hmm. I would not be shocked wow. if this number shot up again over the next mm. decade, just because so many animals do engage in this sort of behaviour. And we're going to be talking about why that might be the case in a minute, but it's just... And like I said, it's not just mammals, it's not just apes and things like that. Like, it's literally crustaceans and things like that as well. So it's, it's really, really widespread. It's really, wow. really cool. It's really interesting. Yeah. So there are going to be two animals that I'm going to focus on talking about today, which are going to be penguins Yay. and dolphins, because we love both of them. And it's quite famous that they engage in same-sex sexual behaviour, but for very different mm -hmm. reasons, which is really cool. Oh. Um, and you both might have seen some TikToks that I've made about these two groups. Uh, it's Caroline the Bug. Shameless plug. Yeah, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, all. Oh, all yeah. I've, mm-hmm. Uh-huh, yeah. I, d I, haven't, I haven't seen these ones, so at least I haven't been spoiled. Ah, okay. No, I haven't. I haven't either. I'm sorry. I knew it, Tom. <laughs> that, that, that's I knew why, it, that's Tom. why. That's why. It's because I don't want to get spoiled for the uh, podcast. Yeah, sure. Um. So is there anything you guys do know about... Either these two animals or any other gay animals that you want to shout out as well. Bonobos. Yeah. Our oh. closest joint relative, along with chimpanzees. Yes. Uh, bonobos uh, are very sexually free as animals. <laughs> and I like that description of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's literally like all they do all day. Uh, <laughs> and they have sex to like bond with each other. And so same sex yeah. mm -hmm. uh, behaviour is you know, part of that, basically. Yeah, yeah. Wow. This is going to get a little bit graphic. Not too graphic, but for anybody who is maybe sensitive to this sort or of stuff. Or certainly maybe if you're a, a particularly young listener. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, I will say, uh, uh, counterpoint, I think not talking about some of this stuff is, yeah. It's literally yeah. one of the most, it is literally the most natural thing in the world. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, one of my absolute favourite stories about probably homosexual animals in general is the accidental discovery of Adelie penguins engaging in same-sex sexual behaviour. This is one of those cases where it was observed entirely by accident, 
It was observed for the first time by a man named George Murray Levitt. Uh, and this is specifically in Adelie penguins. So other penguins also engage in same-sex sexual behaviour. But this story is about these penguins in particular. Um, Levitt made this discovery and it was then kept a secret from the public for nearly a hundred oh. years. <gasps> because because they were like... <laughs> what? <laughs> penguins aren't allowed to be gay. Penguin, gay penguins? What the fuck, bro? It, it wasn't just because of the same-sex sexual behaviour. This is the part which okay. is going to get okay. a little okay. bit graphic. Okay. Oh, no. So just a heads up, yeah. Sorry, sorry, what year was this again? So this was between 1910 and 1912. Oh. So I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So this only came out... Like 10 years ago. About, like, about 10 years ago, yeah. Like during the Obama presidency. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. That's David Cameron, Prime Minister, yeah, for those of you. Yeah, for that lot. Actually, well, I have this new technology. We're going to have dynamic uh, translations inserted into the, <laughs> into the podcast, depending on your region. So... This is one of the earliest recordings of same-sex sexual behaviour that I can find. It's surprisingly mm, difficult mm. to find this information online. But obviously gay animals have existed for thousands and thousands of years, so there's definitely the possibility that older observations exist. I just couldn't find one. And I really like this story, so it was a great excuse to share it. So, this occurred on the 1910 British Antarctic Expedition, or the Terra Nova Expedition, and Levick was acting as a surgeon and zoologist on this trip. Of course. Well, two natural things. Doing both. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> During the Antarctic summer of 1911 to 1912, Levick got the opportunity to observe the colony of Adelie penguins at Cape Ardair. That actually makes him the only scientist to this day that has studied an entire breeding cycle of this colony of penguins, mm. which no is way. insane. Yeah. What he observed wow. during his time there was males engaging in a reasonable amount of sexual activity. I'm not here to judge. We're not going to judge the penguins today, apart from maybe in a second. Because not only did they engage with same-sex sex, so males engaged in a lot of sexual activity with other males, they also engaged in sex with inanimate objects okay and on occasion deceased females no. as well yeah so levick was so shocked about this that he wrote his original notes supposedly in greek so that normal <laughs> people God. couldn't read it <laughs> that's so ridiculous yeah so only like highly educated gentlemen i say in quotation marks were able to read the notes that he was huh? writing <laughs> Because he was so shocked by what he was observing, basically. He wrote a paper. I love, I also, I love the idea that what is, and it's a good thing, that what a <laughs> hundred years ago someone had to codify in Greek in like a notebook yeah. that they sealed away for a hundred years is now something that on a podcast we just have to like whisper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is how it should be, I think, but yes. So he wrote a paper of his experiences in 1915. He did write a section about the sexual activity that he's observed, but that had to be cut from the original paper because the publisher just thought that the general public should not be made aware of that information, basically. Hmm. He then wrote a separate pamphlet with the information instead. <laughs> Sorry, like a, a little, yeah. like a, you know... The, like the folded pamphlets that people hand out on the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's it's just essentially like... like 
out on the street. Like, would you, would you like to hear about penguins? Comedy sex? show tonight. News about penguins. Hey, here's my new album. <laughs> this is we say pamphlet as in like a smaller. Okay. Say it basically, yeah. So he wrote this smaller um, piece of work. And I think they had around 100 copies of it created, which was shared amongst very specific members of the scientific community. And that was that was it, basically. Nobody knew what was going on there, apart from these around 100 people who'd seen this piece of writing. Science, science is weird. Science be <laughs> science weird. Is, scientists. Scientists were weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would take around 50 years for another person to even observe the sexual activity that took place in this colony. And it would take a hundred years for a copy of this pamphlet to be found. I think we have now also found his original notebook as well. So that's pretty cool. How strange. <laughs> it's, it's such a bizarre story, which really didn't need to be, because there is quite a simple sort of explanation about why the penguins were acting in such a depraved and horrible way <laughs> putting very like human emotions towards what these penguins were doing yeah um so what do you guys think might have actually been going on with the adeli penguins here um they huh were just real excited <laughs> <laughs> what actually happens is so the adeli penguins group together in october to mate they only have a few weeks to do this before they separate out again. Oh, right. And it just isn't enough time for the younger penguins to fully learn how to behave whilst they're engaging. Including what like an actual penguin even looks like when they are oh. ready to participate. <laughs> right, that's such a... Yeah. That's <laughs> such a... I mean, it just goes to show how entirely anthropomorphic we're being. Where oh, we're yeah. like, uh -huh. clearly, this must be when it's like they. And I forget. I mean, we hear all the time the stories about how penguins have these like Marshall the penguins, you know, like migrations or movements yeah. to where with these breeding patterns and stuff like that. So it's not like they're they're just like hanging around. They they have these periods of like sexual activity and stuff like that. Yeah, really short periods followed by like extremely long periods of being separated from each other, having to go and hunt, having to go and feed, and things like that. Like, mm. you just don't think about it, yeah. Actually, now that I think about it, big periods between sexual activity is... Um, uh, to <laughs> um, totally normal for... <laughs> to totally normal. Actually, probably the most... Probably pretty normal for, for humans, just saying. I mean... <laughs> but that's... I mean, yeah, I literally hadn't it thought about that. And, so and it goes sense, to show... Yeah. yeah, how you describe this contextually mm -hmm. by leaving that detail out, like, it completely changes... Yeah, How you think about absolutely. That's so yeah. wild. To think that, like, the majority of the time, so I think there was one quote which was basically like, in some cases, deceased females, if they were like slumped over, they looked like they were in the right position for it and things like that. And even <laughs> inanimate objects like rocks with like white splotches on them Aww. look like they've got like the right markings of a female. And it's just a complete case of mistaken identity. You, you listen to it and you're like, oh my god, penguins are awful and horrible. And yeah. you're just like, actually, they're just a bit confused sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I've honestly, even if they weren't confused and it's just like, we've got a couple of weeks, just just crack on with just everything. Go for it. Just, just what, whatever's happening. Whatever you can. Yeah, I don't absolutely. Think it, you know, yeah. They're animals. Yeah. They've not got like <laughs> intent behind. Uh, the only intent yeah, exactly. they have behind yeah. it is to is to breed. It's not like the mm -hmm. intent is to be nefarious or weird. Yeah. So yeah. 
we can't hold them to human standards. Yeah. Right. We have to. We have to consider. You know, some some species of animals like lay thousands of eggs, and it's yeah. like that's a whole. That's we we can't even like make a comparison to that because mm -hmm. it's like what is that even like? So yeah. So another animal that I want to talk about is bottlenosed dolphins, and it's look dolphins. Um, dolphins are fucked up. Dolphins. <laughs> this is literally everything like, we just said. No, no, no. Just, but yeah, you guys, everything you know. we just said. Uh, Dolphins, dolphins, are no, dolphins are, you know, almost what one of the smartest animals compared to uh -huh. humans. So they know when they're doing fucked up shit. They know what they're doing. They know it's messed up. And this was literally like the next part of my script is that I'm sure we've all heard about the less nice stuff that dolphins do. And I'm not going to talk about it okay, today. I'm just good. not going to do okay, it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I have a video on my page if anybody is curious. If you want to be really upset at dolphins... You can be. I feel like but I not feel today. like a lot of popular science things have talked about it. Yeah, enough. It's, I, I, fine. it's pretty <laughs> well aware. known about. What I am going to talk about is the slightly nicer side, which is oh, thank God, <laughs> dolphins engaging in same-sex sex. Lovely, nice stuff. <sighs> <laughs> so this is specifically in bottlenose dolphins. Some male bottlenose dolphins have periods in their lives being almost exclusively homosexual huh. and will often form lifelong bonds with the partner Aww. that they engage with which is really really <laughs> lovely they tend to spend a good portion of their early lives in exclusively male groups which is where a lot of same-sex sexual behavior occurs in these groups and they will find their lifelong buddy there which is really really lovely Females have also been observed to engage in same-sex sexual behaviour, but they're less likely to form hmm. these lifelong bonds. We don't entirely know why they do it. There's a lot of different theories. First off, they're very, very social animals. That's right. They might just like each other's company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could be a form of bonding for them and just enjoying each other's company. Some people have suggested that it could be potential practice for younger males to then be able to successfully procreate with a female in the future. And also they could just do it for fun. I feel like dolphins are known yeah. for having fun, right? Not just sexually, oh, yeah. just 100%. generally. Yeah, absolutely. So this is like almost exactly the opposite of what the Adelie penguins are doing, which is very, very mm. deliberate mm. same-sex sexual acts. Because of that social bonding, because of wanting to impress a female in the future or because they feel like it, you know? purely yeah. it being a like nice thing for them to do and like mm. i think that's really really cool to see in the animal kingdom as well like being aware that both ends of that spectrum exist yeah is a good thing so this next question that i'm going to ask you guys might be a little bit harder to answer but it is why do what we... is love what is what is liking someone no it's why do we care about animals engaging in, huh. in sexual behavior that is a great Question. It's a really good question, isn't it? Why why do we give a damn about what animals are doing? I mean, one one answer is that not observing it is an opinion, right? Mm -hmm. Because it sounds like the there have been, I mean, you know, if the fact that someone is observes something and then choose to write it in cryptic Greek instead of just writing what happens, yeah. it, you know, in some ways, you know, yeah, I think I think to your point, it there's it's like the question's a little loaded because it's like, why would you not yeah. notice it if it happens, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if I'm wording this correctly, but like, it happens. And that's why we care about it, 
right? In the same way we care about any other animal behavior. Yeah. And and I think not observing it is biased in a way in itself, right? Because oh, yeah. you you're, you're 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 imposing your your top-down anthropomorphic views that like this is something that shouldn't happen, right? Which is strange. I don't know if that makes sense. This was not the answer I had, but I like this answer way more than the one I wrote down. <laughs> so <Sorry. laughs> it, it, did, it did make sense, Tom. It, it took a while yeah, totally. to get there, but we got there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but in the edit, it'll be lickety split. Amazing. <laughs> so why might we care about it from a human behaviour perspective? Um, because... People say that being homosexual is unnatural, and this is a the indicator that it's not in any way. Comprehensive <laughs> proof that it's not. Yeah, that's also a really good answer. But might throw a little bit of a curveball. Oh, uh, trying to figure out the evolution of it can be really beneficial to see what other animals do as well to try and come up with some theories, maybe about why it's a thing in the uh. first place. So we've spoken about. Darwinian theory or the Darwin theory of evolution. I think we've spoken about it on the podcast a few times before, but can either of you give a very brief summary of what it is? Selective pressures mm-hmm. uh, lead to advantageous traits being passed down through generations and those, yeah. the offspring with the most advantageous traits surviving and passing those down until those... Yeah. That. So that's that's it, pretty much exactly it. Yeah, like a what random mutation said. will potentially not cause any benefits but might cause a benefit leads to that individual living for longer being more likely to pass their genes on in homosexual humans specifically so in say a gay man are they passing their genes on oh yeah that's that's such a good point you know why huh yeah it's it's a really interesting question isn't it how have we got to this point if if it is a genetic thing if it is something that's part of our dna how is it getting passed on? And don't they think that um, the kind of percentage of like homosexuality in humans is re- reasonably consistent as well? So it obviously it's increasing a bit at the moment because it's being more socially acceptable. Yeah. But <laughs> it has been a thing throughout the entirety of human history. There's no point denying that fact. We have examples of ancient Egyptians engaging in that kind of activity. Which again, as we have learned, is as far back as the record goes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so we know that it's been a thing for a really, really long time. It's not just something that has become trendy or anything like that in recent history so how does it keep persisting that's such a good question yeah it's so it's and this is what we're going to be talking about today there's chemicals in the water that turn the frogs gay (laughs) that turn the freaking frogs gay i cannot is i mean my only (laughs) intuition to this is that evolution happens on this sort of like larger scale and and and, you know when we talk about it we mostly talk about it as like this sort of like very clean cut efficient thing where it's like if this happens therefore this must happen therefore there is this reason for this whereas i feel like the more complex view of evolution is like there's a lot of shit that just is yeah, 100%. It, it is all chance and, and there's a lot of things, you know, there are so many things. As much as it is useful to think about things happening for a reason, there's a lot of things that happen for for no evolutionary, well, like, quote-unquote. I think that's the thing, yeah. like, when it comes to evolution, nothing is happening on purpose. It's all, like, it's a random mutation that is causing yeah. a random benefit. It's not anybody 
there's no deliberate selection pressures it just happens so that also changes how you can look at it sometimes yeah, yeah. i'm so i mean my my intuition is just that like it's <laughs> it's not a great answer it's just it's just, it's it just, just a thing happens. that can it just happen is. yeah yeah i really like that and possibly that should be where we leave it however there are quite a few different theories about the possible evolutionary benefits of having homosexuality. Oh! I'm really interested to hear this. Really interested to hear this. So this is just a handful. There are, uh, like, hundreds of different theories, um, but these are the ones <laughs> that, like, I like the most. <laughs> um, so one of them is that indiscriminate mating increases the chances of successful mating. It's the same with the Adelie penguins. Huh. If you're more likely to engage in homosexual behaviour at some point, you'll get it right as well. <laughs> <laughs> about that is so so funny to I me know. I just, <laughs> if you fuck enough guys when you're a dude eventually one of them will get pregnant i'm trying can i tell you i'm trying to think if the um extremely conservative crowd would love that or would hate that oh, yeah. <laughs> i can't tell what, what i don't i don't like that what i don't like that one just because it's of not the, great it, for human perspective, yeah. but in like sure. in an animal perspective, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And again, it's one of those things that depends on the the breeding patterns. Because again, oh, we yeah. can't we can't be applying this like human yeah. uh, perspective to it. Because again, animals, <laughs> same animals, just like have a thousand babies, and yeah, that's just absolutely. yeah. And things like if you are, say, a really, really isolated species, say if you only come across mm, one individual mm. every now and then, like there are pros and cons to it. Like the con is you're potentially wasting energy by engaging in intercourse, but also there's potentially fewer missed opportunities as well. So you are more likely to pass on your genes that way if you just sort of go for it. You know, yeah. <laughs> these all make sense for animals. I, I, do yeah. we have human yeah. ones? We do have human ones as well, or ones that could apply to humans as well. One of them is alliance formation. So, like the gay straight alliance. Yeah. Oh yeah, love that. <laughs> <laughs> I do see this. I do see this for humans in terms of like, especially we used to be very um we used to do more war and stuff you yeah. know <laughs> and and i feel like for, particularly from like male homosexuality like that as a bonding thing makes a lot of sense yeah. to me mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and like if you look at our closest relatives like you mentioned earlier ella it makes a lot of sense from that point of view as mm. well of like either wanting to form an alliance with another individual or just social bonding and things like that if you are willing to perform these sexual favors you're more likely to survive in your group and therefore more likely to survive full stop that's and then so more interesting likely to yeah pass on your genes so that totally makes sense as as yeah. social sociality is like such a defining trait of more you know complex animals like mm, like yeah. the the apes so this next one is one that i'm going to mention now because it becomes relevant later and okay. it's potentially relevant to animals, but I want to clarify that if anybody thinks that this applies to humans, I'm going to be angry at you. The, so this theory is mate attraction, and it's the idea that imitating heterosexual intercourse may help initiate sex with a member of the opposite sex. So it might attract the mate, it might get the mate in the mood, it could show them what they need to do, anything like that. So that sort of same-sex intercourse could potentially lead to different-sex intercourse. That is the theory. And for some animals, it makes sense. For humans, less so. 
Yeah. My favourite theory is something called kin selection. It's also lovingly referred to as the gay uncle hypothesis. <laughs> it's really sweet. It's the idea that homosexual behaviour in familial groups, say, like having a gay uncle, first off reduces the number of offspring within that group, so it reduces the competition for resources, but also increases the chance of any offspring that, like, say... Your sibling produces surviving longer because there's more care involved in looking after that sibling. Mm, mm. Um, and that then allows those genes to get passed on. Not through you directly sharing your genes, but through a family member of yours passing on those genes and then caring about that group. That's really interesting. And wanting them to survive onwards, mm. which is really, really interesting. It kind of makes sense in animals and you know you have animal groups that have uh, like hierarchies where only certain yeah animals absolutely. in that hierarchy can have children you can see it making a lot of sense for earlier humans as well so when we did have to compete for resources a lot more than we currently do mm-hmm. you can see that being a really really good sort of explanation about how we're here now of if an animal is exclusively homosexual it can help care for the others it reduces yeah. the competition all of those sorts of things it makes a lot of sense mm. There's a bunch more theories, Um, these are just a few, and in the show notes there is a book titled Homosexual Behaviour in Animals, An Evolutionary Perspective, which covers a lot more theories if anybody is interested in that. That sounds like a great book. (laughs) It it was a really good read, I really, really enjoyed it, Um, so I would recommend it. So, a lot of these theories rely on the idea that being gay or engaging in same-sex sexual behaviour has a genetic component... And the next big question is, is there one? Is it a genetic thing? Or does it no. rely on something completely separate? I, I know you. maybe you'll give us some evidence that could be like, ooh, maybe it could be genetic. But what I'm saying, yeah, no. <laughs> and I refuse to listen to you. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no... There's sexuality, attraction is like... I mean, okay, height isn't even controlled by a single gene. There's no way something as yeah. complex mm. as sexuality mm. even ha- has like, e- like even like a 10 gene thing. It's going to be a combination yeah. of so many different factors that we will just never understand. Oh, yeah. I, I want to say, Caroline, this is uh, hilarious. And so I'm, I'm so appreciative for this because while... Uh, Ella, as a queer person who works with DNA, clearly has a very like well-founded <laughs> opinion on this. Uh, I, on the other hand, m- with most of these questions, have never had to like, especially as a science communicator and someone who 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 tries to be proactive on these issues. I I, I don't know if I've ever like sat down and thought about something like that. It's such an interesting thing, isn't it? That like. I, I really, really enjoyed researching this because every time I got to the end of a section, it was like, huh, okay, yeah. that's an interesting question now. Um, so yeah, I, I'm really glad you And, and you know, to, to the earlier point, it's just that like, it's, it's yeah, socially uncommon when it probably shouldn't be as uncommon as it is to ask yeah. these questions because they, mm-hmm. they are science questions. Well, I mean, there is a reason why people Absolutely, don't ask yeah. this question uh, that much and it's because of the implication that comes with saying that something like homosexuality is genetic is that it can be fixed or changed then. Mm. That, that's mm. the implication yeah. of this. Yeah, absolutely. I know, you're, I know you're going to present a balanced balanced view that is that won't <laughs> imply that, Caroline, but it's just that is one yeah. of the reasons why this 
this is not a discussion yeah. that people that makes sense. in it's, there's a lot of nuance to it and some bad actors will take yeah. it in a bad way yeah absolutely and this is like this is a thing a lot specifically like i think we've all heard about like the fear of designer babies mm-hmm. and things <laughs> like that like so that is a legitimate concern that people have and i'm really glad you brought it up ella because it is a really really important thing yeah. to mention so early twin studies suggest or suggested that there was a genetic component to same-sex sexual behavior greater than 50 percent in monozygotic twins you're saying have share are both homosexual uh so i believe it was in identical twins if one twin was gay there was i think it was 50 percent more likely that the other one would be and in fraternal twins, I believe it was twenty percent. The twenty. So it was twenty. Wait. So, so okay. Wait. What you're saying is, if in fraternal twins, if one was gay, there's a twenty percent chance that one would, the other would also be gay. I think it's twenty percent more likely that the other. I wonder one will what that actually the yeah. actual percentage yeah. is in terms of like. I yeah, I didn't find that. To be fair, I very briefly looked at this because twin studies for this sort of thing probably aren't the most useful thing ever yeah monozygotic or identical twins because a lot of this i mean there is a cultural element to homosexuality and twins are brought Mm -hmm. up in the same environment so there is gonna say yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah and there are other things that could potentially i'm gonna mention this briefly later but there are other factors that we're just not going to discuss today there's the societal point of view there's hormonal point of view hormones still within the womb things like that so many things which we know influence same-sex sexual activity homosexuality all of these things in humans specifically and we're just not going to talk about it today there's not time to so yeah like that with twin studies like it's really really unethical to separate twins at birth just to see if they (laughs) do something different um so that's why we don't really use them that often anymore Uh, and this was 1991 so this was a reasonable amount of time ago <laughs> enough enough we should have known better, <laughs> we, we should have known better but here, we, here are. we are in 1993 so two years after that twin study was conducted the theory of the gay gene was mm. born basically there were a few other studies that had suggested the possibility of a gay gene existing and in 1993 a study by Hamer et al found a correlation between the X chromosome genetic marker XQ28 and gay male sexuality. Smells like bullshit. <laughs> That's because, Ella, it is. Um... Oh, we, need, we, need, we need that sound bite on a, on, a, on a soundboard. Oh, yeah. That's useful. So, first note is, obviously, lesbianism wasn't looked at in this study. Not yet. Classic. Which is... Also bullshit and is a theme. I remember there being a few letters in the... uh... Yeah, not just gay, uh, everyone else too. So this study looked at 40 pairs of homosexual brothers. A gene gene correlation study. Gene correlation studies now, you're talking thousands and thousands of participants and they they still don't believe the results that they get out of that. They're still Uh (laughs) sceptical. Give me some, that's some real bullshit. This was in 1993 as well. We should have fucking known better than to do this shit. (laughs) So, yeah, basically it suggested that that correlation was there and therefore the gay gene or the theory of the gay gene sort of came into existence. 
except for the fact that those results were never repeatable. <laughs> nice. And in 1999, a study by Rice et al. actively found the absence of a linkage between marker XQ28 and male homosexuality. So it's, it's just not a thing. And I, the idea of a single gay gene existing has not died out. Insane. This is still something that literature mm. references, that mm. media references all of the time. I want to say with absolute confidence now that there is not a single gay gene. We have never found one, and chances are we absolutely never will. It, oh, if, can, I just, can I just say, if there are any conservatives watch, listening, uh, there is a gay gene. And I'm, and I'm currently studying a way to transfect all of your cells with that gene. I will find every single one of you and I will do that as you sleep. Actually, this is what uh, was put into the COVID vaccines. I'm so sorry, everyone. <laughs> it's too late, you're already gay. Um, oh, good grief. Good fucking grief. <laughs> oh, dear. So... It's mentioned in literature nearly 30 years after the initial publication and 23 years after being debunked. Uh, reputable, wow. reputable news sites like Nature, I read a Nature really? article saying that still referenced the what? idea, even though they were saying that it didn't exist. Like, they still use it as this grabby headline being like, Ugh. does the gay gene exist? This study finds... Like, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely absurd. No, this study finds no. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. if it's in the headline, there should be a no in the headline also. Yeah. To be fair, in one of them, there was a no oh, in the headline. That was quite satisfying good. to you see. love to see that. <laughs> so the question now is, is there a genetic component at all? Mm. And the answer is possibly, but not really in the way that we maybe think there is. I will explain. In 2019, one of the largest studies on the genetic basis of sexuality found possibly five DNA markers, so five spots on the human genome, that are linked to same-sex sexual behaviour. They're not enough to predict a person's sexuality mm -hmm. or anything like that. But according to this study, it, it does exist. There are some issues with this study, though, and I'd like to talk about those now. So the first one is... So this study, as Ella mentioned previously, like these studies now have to use like hundreds of thousands of participants. Yeah. This one Wild. used genomes from nearly 500,000 people. Ooh. So it is a humongous study. So like when you hear that, you're like, wow, that's that's really, really promising. Yeah, you go, who? Yeah, yeah. The issue is, where do you guys think they might have gotten those oh, genomes don't from? tell me it's some um, like self-selection through like 23andMe or something like that. It's 23andMe. It's 23andMe. Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly a random sample. So it's uh -huh. mostly, it's, it's mostly uh, white Americans then. It's <laughs> white Americans and the average age for 23andMe customers is around 51. Oh, oh interesting. So older white Western people. Oh, and, oh, so they're also less likely to report as being homosexual then as well. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. It also used a UK-based biobank, again, with participants ranging from 40 to 70. So it's a much older sample than you would like to see in a study yeah. like this. Um, I will, but, but just before we move on, the, I will say 23andMe data is really, really useful for these big genome studies when, mm -hmm. when it's not a self-reported uh, thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know what 23andMe is, I'm sure everybody does, but it's a, like a genetics testing service 
where customers send a DNA yeah, sample take a swab in the form send of a in. saliva yeah. sample, yeah. And they get it tested. It can generate things like ancestry and genetic predispositions to health-related issues and things like that, which is why people might use it um, and potentially why that market is so much older as well. There is another smaller issue as well that I do want to note on since this is like an LGBT issue, is that nobody who was trans was allowed to participate in the study. Allowed? They only, yeah, they only used people whose gender identity was the same as their sex assigned at birth. Just because... Yeah, it's a... We are, like, get why... It's a confounding factor that could make the data hard to interpret, but it does fall into a larger issue that studies like this often Mm -hmm. exclude trans people. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it just adds to that thing of... This study is fantastic and like I don't want to take too much away from it because it is really, really cool that there possibly is a, some level of proof of some linkage between homosexuality and genes, but it's not necessarily generalizable yeah. to a wider population. Nuance. And possibly not generalizable to a group of people who are actively part of the LGBT right. yeah. community. Right, 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 right. So that's worth mentioning. Yeah. But where does that leave us now if we're having all of these questions about a study that was meant to be fantastic you know Mm. where do we go from here and obviously there's more than just these genetic theories as i mentioned previously there's a lot of things that can influence homosexuality and the answer really is that we just don't know and more studies are being done in various fields which is really really fantastic there is one really fucking dumb study, though, that I would like to mention today. Oh, boy. Before we move on, can I, can I give you some context that I think will help people understand just how complicated this is to understand on it, a genetic yeah. level? This is regarding my own research. Oh, yeah. So I study type 1 diabetes, or I did, and type 1 diabetes, we know exactly what causes it physiologically. Your immune system attacks the cells that produce uh, insulin. We know exactly what causes that. You think if there's anything that we're going to find a genetic... And it's it's heritable as well. We don't know how, but it is. Mm-hmm. You think if there's anything we're going to find a genetic link for, it's going to be something like type 1 diabetes. This has been studied for a very, very long time. We've still not found a genetic link. There's a, so many environmental factors that play into developing this that you can have mm. all of the biomarkers it would say that like 90% of people with type 1 diabetes share common genetic links but people mm-hmm. who have that same marker will not develop type 1 diabetes yeah um, mm-hmm. and you could have all of those markers and then still not develop it because you didn't go through a, a single specific environmental or several different environmental factors and homosexuality is not a a single a physiological mm-hmm. change in your body either it's a a whole set of things and uh, yeah. and yeah. so you know you know it, it makes a lot of sense that we actually don't know yeah. what the answer is and possibly never will know and that's okay ella this is it's a little embarrassing i don't know if you can tell on your video but your doctorate's showing when you say <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> um but if anybody does want a little bit more information about this study specifically, I forgot to mention this previously, um, the authors of the paper, along with, I think, an LGBTQ plus ad- advocacy group, created an accessible website where you can read about the study, you can read about the implications of it, 
Um, and all of the information that I've shared here today, actually, for the most part, has come from this website as well. So that's awesome. going to be in the show notes too. And that's called, it's titled The Genetics of Sexual Behavior. So again, if you would like to know a little bit. This is a, a pop in show notes. I'm excited. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a good one. Um, but yeah, would totally recommend having a bit of a read of that. So yeah, so basically, we don't know what the science of homosexuality is. Mm-hmm. I can also confirm that the paper that I'm about to share with you now also has no bloody clue. It's, this is fantastic. This is the reason that I did this today was because I saw this study. Are you kidding me? Oh yeah, <laughs> I wanted to get this in so badly. <laughs> so there's one study that I'd like to touch on, which is based on the theory that I mentioned earlier, the idea that same-sex sexual behaviour is used to attract a mate. Mm-hmm. Oh, you did ask us to remember. Yeah. So, like I mentioned earlier, in the animal kingdom, I can totally see this being a possibility. And I'm not going to sit here and claim that it's not. That would be really silly of me. However, one study published in 2017... Far too recent to be bad. ...suggests that this is also the case in humans too. Specifically... For those in a lesbian relationship. Oh, yeah. Cla- oh, oh, no. Is, is the author a man? Is the oh, main... no. All of the authors are men. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> mm. um, so, a man named Menelaus Apostolou, <laughs> along with three other scientists, conducted a survey of over 1,500 people. I'm going to read a section of the abstract here because it fills me with rage. So, part of the abstract states, (laughs) this paper proposed a theoretical framework where, during the period of human evolution, same-sex attractions in women were under positive selection. The source of positive selection has been male preferences for opposite-sex sex partners who experienced same-sex attractions. The theoretical framework was used to generate four predictions that were tested in two online studies, which employed a total of 1,509 heterosexual participants. What? Say that one more time, sorry. So, he conducted an online test where he took 1,509 participants and asked them about their attraction, and did not include a single gay person. What? What? Yeah. What? Where was this published? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, valid question. Hey. I did have it. Wanna, I might have to circle back in? to the one. It can't be like a good journal. Oh, it wasn't not. anything fantastic. Let me pull it up. <laughs> I, I, this is also the power of science literacy because in this context when he says the theoretical framework he basically means an idea (laughs) but you turn it into the word theoretical Uh framework and it it makes it sound i I put a buzzfeed quiz online and uh 1000 people answered it (laughs) (laughs) we we asked 500 white americans what it's like to be chinese Oh my god. It has to have been like a predatory journal where they paid to get it published because I just don't it must I just have don't been. believe that yeah. this would get through reviewers like in a social even in social sciences That's they've got the to have thing. some fucking yeah. standards. Mhm. Mhm. That's a joke. That's Whew. 
It's it's actually oh. a joke. Yeah. yeah. I, I, Caroline, you said that this this was like the seed that started it. I totally see how, <laughs> how this yeah. this the, this. Uh-huh. You <laughs> see this, why like, I get so worked up about it? Tiny ounce of uranium fuel was enough to power you for for days. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Okay, let's go. Can we move on? <laughs> I want to do some research now. Yeah. <laughs> I want to. But th- this is basically the last point, unfortunately. Um, but I-, I just wanted to like finalize it by saying that this paper is like the most backwards, unscientific piece of garbage that I have ever read. <laughs> um, but because this so-called scientist wrote it and it got published, people will believe it. That's that's mm-hmm. the thing that really frustrates me. Yeah, is the idea that. Somebody can turn around and go, like, lesbians are doing this for male attention and it's an evolutionary thing. And, like, they can say it and get away with saying it. And that. they'll, like, cite this paper, which looks legitimate yeah. because people... Has uh-huh. big and I, I don't mean this in an insulting way, but people lack scientific literacy. They don't necessarily know what is a good journal. Yeah. They don't know yeah. if this has, you know, had a good peer review or if this has been paid yep. for yep. to be published. And and some people purposefully obfuscate that. They make it harder to tell oh, yeah. that. Yeah. And like this, I've linked it in the show notes. So if anybody does want to read this paper for some reason, you can. But like the link that I've provided is Science Direct, which you find a lot of actual reputable you papers do. on mm. this website. And that's also a concern because you look at this and you think, that's an actual paper with an actual actual abstract with actual like methodologies and keywords and all of these things like it looks mm-hmm, proper mm-hmm. and it's actually absolutely absurd so yeah how this paper was published is beyond me it must have been paid for and pink news wrote a really interesting article which did an interview with the author which is equally enraging <sighs> Um, and again, it's in the show notes. Um, it's also like balanced out by doing an interview with a psychologist at the other end of it, which is much nicer to read. Great. But it's it's worth giving it a read if this is the sort of thing you're into. Mm-hmm. But basically, what I wanted from this wasn't just a fun opportunity to talk about the supposed gay gene, which doesn't exist, or like the theories behind it. Mm-hmm. But also, it's a really good opportunity to say check your sources yeah because like that study about the gay gene it is harder to find the paper that disputes it and like a lot of papers that i read today did dispute it but a lot of media still references it as if it's an actual thing Mm. and that's the same with this paper you know and um i would like to add that it can be really hard if you haven't been taught how to check these things to actually find what is real like tom said people can deliberately try and hide that from you or make it look more legitimate than it is it's not it's not necessarily your responsibility to know if something is real or not what i would say is trust the scientific consensus above all yeah is this what Mm -hmm. all scientists are saying or the majority of them if you're not sure that's where you should look at the general consensus rather than this kind of like these individual standouts that are going yeah. against everything. And that was exactly what happened with the paper that I've referenced at the end, is that the scientific community literally turned around and was like, that's absurd. <laughs> Everybody Good. turned around and was like, this is obviously mm. not true. I can't believe... Like, they're saying exactly the same thing as what we're saying now. And, like, typically with papers of this sort of nature, that outcry afterwards does happen. So that's a really good place to potentially start yeah. is looking at what other people and even what some news articles have said about it as well. Like it's it's okay to have a bit of a Google and yeah. double check 
what everybody else is saying too. Yeah, articles don't exist in a vacuum, um, yeah, which is a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, sorry to end this on a slightly more serious note. No, no, it's um, interesting. Yeah, it's so yeah, interesting. Yeah. And to like finish it off, I guess, just to say that like homosexuality and same-sex sexual behaviour occurs throughout the animal kingdom and we don't know why and that's okay too if science answers yeah. everything then yeah. life's going to be really boring yeah yep. <laughs> yeah that's a very good point yeah um thank you caroline yeah. that was enraging and thank interesting you very much. yeah i'm the, glad you liked it this is honestly having the time to talk about this in a nuanced way where you're not like should i cut that because i only have a minute to talk about it yeah is yeah. like Oh yeah! Imagine it's, trying it's, to do a TikTok on this. Oh my! Oh. I would not. I, no, I mean, it's like, just not gonna like, happen. It's hard, and uh, uh, that having the chance to <laughs> for you to have thoroughly researched this for us to talk about it with each other is mm. it, like exactly is the the, it's the what we want perfect... from this, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, that, that's, absolutely. Yeah, when I was trying to, I couldn't get the words to it. But yeah, that's all, <laughs> that's all I would love for this podcast. Yeah, we got some real real good discussion out of this. This this was yeah. so fun to just talk through and like like you've both said stuff today that like i didn't think of either so i it's been fantastic thank you guys both so thank much you, caroline today's question is how many songs can you fit into a gram of dna and given ella's track record with guessing numbers no. i'm excited for you to guess it immediately uh <laughs> at least five. Oh, caroline's deep in thought the number keeps going up in my head so <laughs> it's like one of those um like progress bars where the the, the time keeps going up yeah. where you're like two hours three hours four hours it'll take five hours to move this okay. <laughs> is the number absurdly high it's really it's interesting because it's kind of relative right how long for is a the single song? gram it is it, it it's a number it's like it's a it's not going to be a weird prefix number where it's like a quasi bite uh, okay. or a quasi ton of a quasi <laughs> sorry i don't know what that means i'm <laughs> just making up Many. Yeah. so i know that there is actual movements like actual research going towards storing data in dna because dna there's a lot of it and it's very small yeah I'm, you know what? You, you say those. You're not wrong. Those are the. Uh, those are really important things. Yeah. Thank you very much, Doctor Alahaba, for that piece of information. <laughs> I don't. I genuinely don't understand how how it's done. Uh, no. I, mm. My guess, my very basic guess, would be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like ten, one times ten to the twenty songs, basically. Like it'd be like an insane, like hugely insane number. Yeah. Bigger than pi. No, not not bigger than pi. That's really big. I was going to just be like, oh, I reckon it could be like 500,000 songs or like a million songs. You're just like, bigger. no, Think bigger. bigger. Caroline, let your brain load a bit more. That's that's the only reason why. It's still counting. Yeah, that's what, I started off on 3,000 and was like, that's absurd, no. And then I went higher I and higher and higher. 3,000? Exactly. My brain was just not working for a second there. <laughs> well, I know at least five songs, so we'll start there. Uh, <laughs> What's it? The Let's Learn Everything theme song, Carly Rae Jepsen's discography. Um, <laughs> uh, I will say, Ella, to your point about mentioning Pi, it is it is really fun. 
the more we do these big number questions, the more we, I feel like my brain starts to have more reference points for these big numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very true. The number that Ella just said, I have no point of reference for. So, uh, <laughs> can't quite relate that, but we're getting that. <laughs> uh, I did want to ask, and, and Ella, you mentioned it, if y'all have heard about this concept of using DNA for data storage. Yes. My understanding of genetics is very, very like limited to understanding how evolution works and very basic mm -hmm. stuff that I learned in my master's program. And just like the concept of referring to DNA in that way of like being a data storage yeah. was a lot for me to wrap my head around to begin yeah. with like let alone like this stuff that we're about to talk about so that's sort of where i'm at with this it, it's sense. really interesting because from me when this happened i was like oh this clicks with me. i get it now yeah yeah um so i know about this but i don't understand how how it works i assume it's like some mm, kind of binary mm. thing like where you have instead of ones and zeros you have a t c and g you yeah. know i mean that that's that's oh, the gist that's... of it oh. yeah oh yeah oh Okay. Isn't that I cool? That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we yeah, we're gonna get into it. Oh, this is exciting. So this is did you think the DNAs just had like little <laughs> little hard drives plugged in, little flash drives? I was just uh, like, what the fuck is happening? No, and yeah, now yeah. this makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. This is great. So this is maybe one of the most modern topics I've covered. Like there, there is game-changing work happening with this every year. Um, I'm really excited for this episode to eventually be outdated. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> as we know from seeing CRISPR and headlines, like DNA technology is like popping off now. Um, and there are also a lot of big words involved in this, like nanopore and phos phosphorum phosphoramidite. Well done. Um, that I would need to spend uh, a few more weeks on to understand uh, <laughs> and that all probably deserve their own topic. But I, I don't actually want to talk about those things because what caught my eye isn't what this question teaches us about DNA, but what it teaches us about information science and data. And there is more than enough to talk about in just that. So what is just that? Um, like Ella mentioned, the idea is that DNA is a code of little molecules, those like ATCG pairs, right? And if you could edit or synthesize DNA, which again, it's a little hand wavy for now. Uh, my, my understanding, and Ella might have a better understanding of how DNA can get synthesized, is it's more, it looks more like adding liquids to test tubes to add them than it does like a tiny machine that like actually <laughs> yeah. adds the pairs. It's entirely liquid in test tubes. <laughs> so the idea is if you can edit and synthesize DNA, why couldn't we, instead of trying to make like natural code, write whatever code we wanted to, like the MP3 of a song? Or as Clot Magazine put it, we could write a non-biological DNA message, which I thought was a really compelling Ooh, oh, way to I think like about that. that. This feels like one of those things that we would like put a message into and then send it to space, you know? You know what, Caroline, you're not, you're really not far off because that's what inspired this first ah. um, experiment oh. was the Voyager record. Um, and the fact that, <laughs> the fact that they were annoyed that it was so... <laughs> wasn't good enough was, was too was was too you know yeah we'll get into it but um that. so so that that description by uh clock magazine was when they were describing this first experiment uh in 1988 um so in 1988 
molecular geneticist Dana Boyd and biologist and artist Joe Davis encoded 35 arbitrary bits into DNA. Um, and that was then decoded and it made the shape of the Germanic rune for the goddess of Earth. Um, it sort of looks like a, a little tree branch. It's like a Y with like a, a thing at the top also. But of course, it was a seven by three pixel image. So it, it, it looks more like a Minecraft tree branch than a tree branch. <laughs> um, but it, it's still amazing. And they called the work Micro Venus. And to your point, Caroline, it was, uh, they say that it was a direct inspiration because they were like, kind of like with the messages that we sent to the moon, that the, yeah. the Voyager record that they sent off into space was too male focused, too Eurocentric. Kind of um, dumb. That was the, yeah, kind of yeah. dumb. <laughs> uh, so that was the first instance of purposefully encoding data into DNA. But where I first remember hearing about this idea, though, was actually in 2012. And that's when a team from Harvard encoded an entire book into DNA. And from my understanding of the process, um, it's much easier to duplicate the code once it's created. That's, I believe, a similar principle to how... Um, PCR works, right? Mm -hmm. Polymerous polymer chain reactions. And so not only did they encode the book once into DNA, but they were able to make 70 billion copies of this book. Uh, I mean, which... that's just like, that's just how yeah. it, how we do DNA stuff in science. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. <laughs> it's I'm, just part I'm more of the impressed process. with the first, with the first copy yeah. than any of the subsequent copies. Totally, totally. I like the dumb number of copies, Tom. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, you're not the only one that likes that, Caroline, because one article noted that this is three times the top 100 books of all time combined. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> so, uh, oh. Oh, no. I did not realize this when I heard about it back then. Do you know what book they copied? Oh. Uh, the Bible. No. Harry Potter hmm. and the Philosopher's Stone. What? what year was this done in? 2012. Fifty Shades of Grey. It wasn't Stephen Hawking's book, was it? No. That would have been good. That would have been, been nice. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you guys are going to love this answer. I'm so excited. Um, Twilight. This is a quote from... from this, is a, <laughs> this is a quote from George Church uh, when he was interviewed about this experiment. He goes, <laughs> We debated what we should encode, what should nicely represent the digital universe, and we wanted something that would represent sort of the modern digital. So no. we used the HTML version of a book that I wrote recently called Regenesis. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Oh, wait, he did his I, own book. Yeah. <laughs> and to be fair, to be fair, to, to be fair, the book is called Regenesis, How Synthetic Biology Will Reinvent Nature and Ourselves. So, I mean, I mean fine. it is, it is it an is, apropos book. It is book. fine, but it just like, that is some like a real level of narcissism. Put sh Would the works of Shakespeare to? in or something, you know? If you were going to do it to somebody else's book, would you have to get permission from whoever owned the copyright at the time? That's an interesting question. Shakespeare's out, out of copyright, so... Oh, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. True. yeah. Um, it is also very funny in that... Um, in that interview, another researcher was before George Church is like, we considered like Moby Dick or something like that. And then <laughs> got maybe vetoed like, by the and like, scientist's listen, if, own work. If you're going to be the one to do the experiment, if I was in that position, I might do that. Um, and it, like, isn't that every professor's dream to have that many copies of your book? <laughs> and like, maybe that's why he got into the research in the first place. Is like he's, he was just an author and he was like, how do I get copies? How do I, I, I self-promo myself here? <laughs> anyway, personally, 
Uh, I think Walter Benjamin's essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, would have been more apropos. Um, but I went to a liberal arts school and not Harvard, so <laughs> there you go. What do you know, Tom? <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> so so uh, since then, there have been many more advancements. Um, as one review of the literature put it, quote, since the initial studies in 2012, DNA synthesis and sequencing technologies have greatly advanced. And today, the efforts required to perform a DNA storage experiment have nearly become a routine laboratory operation. Oh, wow. I didn't realize, I didn't realize how far along this had already come. I really yeah. thought it was still just, uh, you know, a twinkle in the eye of a scientist yeah in some ways it is and in some ways it isn't and i'm glad i'm glad you have that intuition because we'll get to it um but first i gotta build it up you know <laughs> um so in 2018 they were able to store 200 megabytes of various multimedia files um do you want to guess what they put in this time wow that's like 10 whole hd pictures <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I, That's a I, few episodes I, of this podcast. Why am I no, shit? Why am I shitting on this? Like, it's obviously correct. amazing. <laughs> like, it's amazing that they could do it at all. But in the context of this question, where where we are thinking, exactly, how exactly. is DNA going to revolutionize data storage? What is two hundred megabytes? You're, it's an excellent point. A it's floppy an excellent point. disk. Um, wow. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys want to guess what they put in this time? They put in a few things. I was actually going to ask if you two want to explain what a floppy disk is for our younger viewers. No? Oh, I thought no. you were going to say it for yourself. Oh my God. <laughs> You're going to say that Deep too. Deep breaths, everyone. It's okay. I know what a floppy Caroline disk was is. born 10 years ago. <laughs> this, is, this is a story I think I heard from the Rooster Teeth podcast. I think I heard this from Bernie Burns that apparently he was showing his son a floppy disk and his son said, why did you 3D print the save icon? <laughs> There's no shame in not knowing what one is. No, also, I mean, legitimately. Kind of oh my god, the save, <laughs> kind of funny. the save icon is a floppy disk. Well, I mean, and keep that in mind, because actually, <laughs> the floppy disk is is symbolic. It's, it's relevant to what we're going to talk about later, which is like the fact that storage medias change that <laughs> quickly, right? It gets, it gets smaller and it can t and it can store more. I assume yeah. because they, yeah. DNA, DNA be so small, think about how much pretty small. Get, you can get in there. Um, what do you guys think they put in this this 200 megabytes this time? Um, pictures, some pic some lab selfies. <laughs> <gasps> That'd be great. That'd be oh, really that's funny. great. I love that. Um, the a, a photo of the Mona Lisa. They put in. Uh, they didn't list everything, but they listed. They have um a database of seeds stored in the global seed vault. Oh, I think that's that's, a really, that's really cool. That's good. They have something called the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in over a hundred languages. Oh, um, apt. This yeah. this one now this one. No. <laughs> This is good, but it's it's it was it's, it's all the entries from WikiFeet. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Are we gonna hate this as much as we hate no, no. flags on it's, the? No, no, it's just gonna make you go huh. Okay. It's the HD version of OK Go's music video for "This Too Shall Pass." Oh, I love, love that music video. song. Uh, yeah, they made such a good job. That's the that's the Rube Goldberg <laughs> machine. Yeah! Wow! Yeah. Holy wow! Yeah. <laughs> 
excited to link that in the show notes. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I was like, oh yeah, cool. That's really cool. That is, I love, that does feel very off compared to the others, but it's still a nice one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's like that the, the this too shall pass portion of it, maybe. And also, I mean, you know, they, they wanted to do a video and that, just to, as like a proof of concept. And so I think that is interesting. Yeah. So. Wait, can I ask, um, yeah. I understand how they're coding the data in. But how do they get it back I was out? Just thinking the same thing. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's a very complicated process. It, it's similar to DNA. Um, what's the word? Sequencing, right? In terms of reading from it. Oh. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. But, but there's some interesting encoding and decoding practices in terms of the fact like you want to store tons of copies of it. Um, and also the fact that like you can't store it all in a single strand. So you have to have multiple and then be able to encode it in a way that you can link oh, them up again, which is a, that's really interesting. interesting. And can I just say with like sequencing uh, DNA or RNA, whatever, because we the way we do it, we do, you very rarely read like whole transcripts in one. And like you're saying, is you mm. have to link them back up together. And it's not like a, mm. a perfect. What we do with RNA sequencing is you link, you have a reference genome, so you can you know which genes are which because you oh, you have the yeah. start and end of a gene, so you, then you can oh, so you can fill so in fill in yeah. the blanks. But you have to have the middle bit here. So I'm I find it interesting. So, Surely there's so much room for error in like getting the code back oh, out. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, I yeah, I didn't know that. That's so yeah. Um, that's that's a, a, a challenge unique to this this specific thing of using DNA. And you know, like of course, all of these processes are being done by like many scientists in the lab. Like it's not like a hard drive yet. But at the same time, that same year in 2018, researchers were able to make the first fully automated end-to-end -end device for both writing and reading DNA. Oh, wow. um, of course, you know, it was like the size of a lab bench mm -hmm. and all they <laughs> tested it with was a message that said, hello. So, <laughs> which honestly, I, I like as much as some of the other ones we've mentioned so far. Um, but, you know, that's the dream, right? Being able to use DNA like a hard drive. And what all these paper mention is the theoretical maximum for DNA storage. Mm. Um, if every nucleotide was used to encode the most efficient amount of information, the maximum data storage, uh, and that's the question for today. So I picked songs because uh, when I was growing up, I remember that being a big measure of digital size. Uh, like it was a huge selling point for the iPod. Yeah. Um, I don't know, do y'all yeah. remember how many songs the first iPod could hold? First oh, iPod. I, I never don't. had. A, uh, mm -hmm. I don't think I had an iPod original, but had a physical wheel on it. Yeah. <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, maybe uh, maybe like a hundred songs. That that was how many. And how big was? I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> this is uh from an article from the New York Times in two thousand three. Uh, they go. Two years ago this month, Apple Computer released a small, sleek-looking device. It was called the iPod, a digital music player. It weighed just 6.5 ounces and held about 1,000 songs. That was their big selling Aww. point, 1,000. <laughs> there were small MP3 players around at the time, and there were players that could hold a lot of music. But if the crucial equation is largest number of songs divided by smallest physical space, the iPod seemed untouchable. <laughs> this is my favorite part of that quote. I, I, I could spend forever looking at like um, articles about technology that used to be modern, but they do go... <laughs> Whether the iPod achieves truly mass scale, like, say, the cassette tape Walkman, which sold an <laughs> astonishing 186 oh million units, God. is, you know, 
But, you know, that also got me thinking because they obviously stopped using that as a selling point. Mm. Um, do you know how many songs can fit on the iPhone 13? No, I no honestly clue. have no idea. How, I don't understand. Yeah. How big... We, we, forget, we just don't think about how it. How big one song? How, yeah. uh, that's exactly what I was going to... That's exactly what I have written next. So uh, let's say a song is three and a half minutes long on average. MP3s are usually compressed to be 128 kilobits per second. So that's about 3.36 megabytes per song. Okay. So about three and a third megabytes. And the highest capacity iPhone 13 is 512 gigabytes. Okay, so um, <laughs> one gigabyte is is like <sighs> I chose to do biology. I, I'm just not gonna make you do math. I don't no, do this it. is there's no reason. It, Tom, yeah, stop it. no, you don't have to. Here we go. <laughs> many. My <laughs> That's why is I many. wrote it down. So you know, if you could somehow delete the operating system on your phone and just store songs, it could fit 152,400 songs, um, which is a lot. But <laughs> for DNA. According to the Harvard researchers that put their own book into DNA, quote, at theoretical maximum, DNA can encode two bits per nucleotide or 455 exabytes per gram of SSDNA, quote, the single strand DNA. Ex okay, I know a petapetabyte, pet pet the one that begins with P. You can tell it's big because it's one of those prefixes that you can't immediately think of like a comparison for. So an exabyte is, and this is this is in the ballpark of, of, of your SML. So an exabyte is 10 to the 18 bytes. And when it comes to songs, 455 exabytes is 135 trillion songs. Which is, you know, again, when we're dealing with big numbers, that that's a number. We've heard we've heard things in trillion, but to put it in context, that is twenty four thousand times the size of Spotify's entire music catalog. Wow! Uh, oh, in a gram. Okay. Wow. Can I put you on the spot? Can you just how many how many yeah. iPhone thirteens is that? Ooh. Oh boy. <laughs> let me pull up. Let me pull up Wolfram Alpha real quick. I can do that. Do do do. <laughs> Probably more than exist. Probably more than will ever exist. 455 exabytes. I'm using, by the way, Wolfram Alpha is extremely helpful for these kinds of calculations because they let you do some stuff. And I'll, I'll toss my calculations in the show notes. That's 800 million I iPhones. Right. In a, in a, wow. in a gram. I mean, <gasps> I, I, the reason, I guess one of the reasons I asked you to do that is because although it sounds kind of like, why are they doing this? Like, this is like a just, you're doing this for the sake of doing it. But yeah. like, yeah. we'll get into it. Data yeah. storage is you know, it's exponentially growing, like the need for, for exactly, it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And to say that like in a single, what are you saying? A single strand of DNA or a single, a double strand? It's a gram, a gram. A gram, sorry. Yeah. In a gram of DNA. Well, actually that's quite a lot of DNA, but still it's very small. Like, yeah, yeah. Instead of the kind of resources and cost of 800,000 no, yeah. million, what did you say? 800 million. <laughs> and there, there's there's two other factors, which is, you know, when we jump from the first iPod to the most recent iPhone, it's, it's not actually like a huge jump right like you could yeah. have yeah this is a massive oh mm -hmm. yeah yeah and there are also theoretical limits to hard drive storage right because you can only get so dense before you have to move to a completely new technology you heard it here folks nature does it better <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah but of course to put this in terms that our audience actually cares about um that's six trillion episodes of the podcast <laughs> um, <laughs> personally my favorite is episode four trillion 22 million and four uh, but... and we will be still making the podcast then <laughs> oh yeah yes of course uh, 
As researchers put it, that's six orders of magnitude denser than the densest media available today. Um, And the Harvard team believes it is enough that, quote, you could store the total world's information, which is on the order of zeta bytes or 10 to the 21 bytes. Um, obviously, Obviously, big, big future claims. But to Ella's point, it is... It is leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and DNA storage has another big thing going for it, which is how long it lasts. So um, in the computing world, it's expected for hard drives to last between five and 10 years reliably, right? And digital tape storage, which is used for like archival work, uh, is typically expected to last between 30 to 50 years reliably. But lab tests on the durability of DNA storage, uh, researchers have said, quote, The original information could be recovered error-free even after treating the DNA in silica at 70 degrees Celsius or 158 degrees Fahrenheit for one week. This is thermally equivalent to storing information on DNA in Central Europe for 2,000 years. Wow. Whoa. Now, we obviously haven't actually (laughs) done a test that's 2,000 years long um, unless we happen to unearth Roman DNA tests. But, you know, this is... Actually, closer to the lower bound, there are high-end projections that believe, quote, this is a quote, uh, digital information could be stored, encapsulated in silica at the global seed vault, which is like ideal conditions, um, for over two million years. Wow. I mean, we kind of have done these tests accidentally. Exactly. Because if you recover yeah. any DNA, you can recover DNA from thousands of years ago and exactly. accurately see what genes were, you know, what genes are in that DNA. Yeah. That's and it's such not the, a good point. And that is the same way they're reading this data, right? So yeah, I think I think to your earlier point, it's it's slightly different because you know um, the organization of it is less that we can like read between the lines like you kind of can with of course yeah. what you expect DNA yeah. to look like. But but I mean that's exactly the point that I think excites all these researchers is that the fact that we were able to yeah sequence DNA that that that, that like was just stored in some rocks, you know, like <laughs> yeah. not in not purposefully now. Of course, <laughs> with these big numbers, when I say like two million years, um, I'm sure there's a million science alarm bells going off in your head, right? This is all very cool, but the obvious next question is, but why doesn't the iPhone 13 have a tiny container of DNA in it? Like, why don't I have an iPod that can last two million years and fit all of humanity's songs on it? Uh, if this is so great, why aren't we using it today? Yeah. Um, and this is actually why I wanted to take this question rather than um, beg Ella to do it instead. Uh, it's because <laughs> the most interesting lesson isn't a DNA lesson, it's a data lesson. So um, there's an amazing review of this literature by Says Navala and Strauss that I'm going to be quoting a lot. And as they put it, there are several things that can describe storage mediums. And they are, quote, density, which is the bits per unit of physical volume, retention, which is time that the data are still recoverable, access speed, and energy cost of data, both at rest and per access. So density and retention, DNA excels at that. That's where you get all the big headlines. And that's that's what I led this question with. But access speed and cost are another story so I, I can i just take a guess on the cost thing at least just oh yeah i'm gonna ask about that because 
at the very least, I know how expensive it is to make or synthesize DNA and copy DNA on a, on a normal lab scale, and it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Surely, uh-huh. it would, to make the amount of data you're saying, you would it'd be like have to be like magnitudes cheaper f- to be yeah. feasible. Yeah. So the point of comparison I'm going to ask you in a second is a one terabyte hard drive, which is something that you can buy on Amazon. So for comparison. A one terabyte hard drive on Amazon right now is $45. Mm-hmm. And archival tape storage for one terabyte is about $16. Um, so <laughs> how much do you think a one terabyte DNA hard drive would cost? Okay. Um, hundreds of thousands. Prices, right rules. Hundreds of thousands would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go like back to my original number. 500,000. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So... Um, according to that review I mentioned, which was, again, wonderful, um, they put it, quote, DNA synthesis costs are generally confidential, but leading industry analyst Robert Carlson estimates the array synthesis cost to be approximately $0.0001 per base, which doesn't, that sounds, that sounds pretty cheap. Of like, that's fractions of a penny. For one base? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, you have to remember how small a bit is. So, again, right now, one terabyte hard drive on Amazon is $45. <laughs> one terabyte of archival tape storage is $16. Uh, <laughs> one terabyte of DNA storage would be $800 million. Oh my <gasps> god. Oh my, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, there are, oh, I, sorry, I should have mentioned also that 0.00, it's, it's funny we mentioned songs because that 0.0001 cent per base is also how much you get per play on Spotify. Anyway, <laughs> um, there are other issues because um, unlike a traditional hard drive, reading and writing DNA are actually kind of different processes. Um, so do you remember the micro Venus painting that I mentioned, that first mm-hmm. DNA message? Yeah. I said it was first written in 1988 but it was only ever first read back in 1990 by a different group of scientists. Uh, th- so this is the same as, like, the early audio recordings. I was just thinking where... that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Because it's, it's a different process to, 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 to do that. Um, wow, I'm, I didn't make that connection. I'm glad you <laughs> and also the, the time it takes to read and write these is also a huge issue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, according to Scientific American, writing a single base to DNA right now takes about one second. So uh, actually filling up those 455 exabytes would take many times the current age of the universe. Um, <laughs> and, you know, these, these problems may be addressed, right? As I said, there are game-changing discoveries being worked out, like, as we speak, like, every year. But, you know, that is a big but buried yeah. under most of these headlines. <laughs> but there's a but to the but. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a double but situation. <laughs> so... the double but is but why are we even doing this right if i can't feasibly use this for my iphone why are we doing this and the reason why is because just because this technology doesn't solve all data problems doesn't mean it won't solve a data problem when we talk about digital stuff we like to think of it as just ones zeros and it's so easy to think of it as like that's all data problems are just ones and zeros. But what we've learned from this is that it's clearly more complicated than that. There is a whole science to the m- movement and storage of information and data in practice. Uh, and I want to prove to you just how much it's intertwined here. So another detail about DNA that's often glossed over, several reports put the error rate of writing and reading DNA data as 1%. 
which sounds not great. Yeah, that's huge. Can you imagine every time you open your computer, 1% of files are just like <laughs> not there? Imagine every 100 seconds of this podcast, like out just gone. second is just like, <laughs> it would be quite a lot of <laughs> shit. The, the length could use it though. <laughs> but, uh, but, and you may not know this, I didn't know this, the error rate of traditional magnetic hard drives is also close to 1%. So why don't we lose 1% of files every time we open the computer? Yeah. That's because all modern CDs, DVDs, hard drives, almost all digital storage uses something called error detection encoding. So you're not just writing the ones and the zeros, you're writing them in these packets that have references so that if there's an error, there's a way to double check it and there's a way to correct it. So it takes up more space, but it's more reliable. Uh, specifically, most use something called Reed Solomon error correction. Uh, I'm going to toss a, there's a great computer file video that explains how that works if you're very curious. But this exact same algorithm is being used in DNA encoding. And do you want to know when the Reed Solomon error correction algorithm was invented? Go yes. On. It was 1960. Oh. Back when this was like a dream of an idea because you know, when Reed and Solomon were working on it, they weren't just thinking about computers or DNA. They were thinking about information science. Yeah. And DNA is partly information science. And because of that, it can benefit from it. And it can be used to solve information science problems. So if you've ever built a computer, you know that there's a use for different kinds of memory, right? Uh, RAM is fast but small memory. And hard drives are slow but big memory. And having a data storage that is extremely slow, but extremely dense and extremely long lasting has a very real use with archival work. Ah. There are data storages that matter more than an iPod. There are different kinds. Um, and so, right, this is a perfect thing for things like the directory for the Global Seed Vault, where you, you don't need to read it all the time. Yeah. And you need it to last longer. And there's actually one special thing about it um, that makes it stand out above every other kind of digital memory. Like for me, this is the most compelling reason for DNA data more than any of the like big numbers. And it's that <laughs> unlike tapes or hard drives or floppy disks, it is impossible for humans to move on from DNA because oh. it's in us, you know? It's not a fad like laser disks. <laughs> it is literally in us and all living things. And it has been for billions of years. So it's not like we're going to move on to DNA 2.0 and then be mm -hmm. like shit out of luck with our peripherals. <laughs> so to wrap it up, it's unlikely that DNA will give us the next best iPod, but it's possible that we could use DNA to store songs for a future so far ahead that nobody remembers what an iPod even is. That's ugh. That point is so good. That's so A really interesting, interesting point, that last bit. Hello. <laughs> no, Hello. Hi. Not, not starting it like that. Yeah, maybe I am. <laughs> hello. Hi. Hi, Ella. Hi, kids. I'm Dr. Ella. I was just going to say <laughs> hello, Dr. Oh, Ella. Come on. <laughs> um, so today... Yeah, and what are you going to tell us with your doctorate? What, what's the topic you're going to talk <laughs> to us about? <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Today's miscellaneous topic is niche sports. Oh. Before I get into it what kind of sports do you think i might be talking about <laughs> is this sports done 
like a really random sports done in like Olympics of the past. Oh, you know, it, it, it isn't any of those, but if you can think of any of those, then that would be great. I had one one thought, which is that, and this is just to get myself in the headspace. Do you, the reason that it's called figure skating is because one part of it used to be you would literally skate figures like figure eights into the ice. To, to, to like show your oh. precision oh. Um, and so I'm thinking of like that kind of like making but like I, I know there's like a there's a sport called like high lie which is like a it's like a, a curved thing and you like sling a ball Ella I'm is one of, like of them Quidditch <laughs> is, I do class Quidditch as amongst these kinds of sports I guess okay perfect yeah I, I kind of um I think it's probably the people who play Quidditch do take it very seriously, and for that reason, yeah. I won't. Be, I won't besmirch Quidditch in any way. Oh, are we allowed to take the piss out of the sports you're going to mention today? Basically, uh, no, actually, Ooh. you're not. <laughs> you, they are fascinating, but okay. you're not allowed to make oh. fun of them. So, all of, <laughs> all of these sports I'm going to talk about. I, I'm actually. This is all of my inspiration comes from a Netflix series called Home Game, ah. um, which. After you listen to this, I 100% recommend going and watching because it's amazing. It covers basically niche, cult, often culturally relevant sports. Watching the show and getting this information is like a very different experience. Watching the games yeah. is great, and you should. <laughs> <laughs> um, starting with something cool. I know very well, okay, uh, which is roller derby. Oh. I should have known oh, that Roller Derby yeah. was going to come up. So I think Roller Derby is is a bit more popular now. Yeah. But is still niche in the sense that it's not played by very many people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys know what Roller Derby is? You be on roller skates. Step one. Yeah. And 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 that's all I know about it. And and it's scary. <laughs> I think I watched a Try Guys video on this, but I know you like go around <gasps> yeah. in the loop to score points. And oh, yeah. Then yeah. You can push. But like before that, my practical understanding is like you wear the pads and the helmet for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're you're right, Tom. And I've seen that, that Trigo video is very funny. Roller derby, so it's a full contact sport played on roller skates and quad skates to be specific. So which is, that's the four wheels, two in the front, two in the back. Yeah. And the basics of the game are this. Um, and this is from the Cornwall Roller Derby webpage. The objectives of roller derby are relatively simple, to score points. The team with the most points at the end of the game or bout wins. Each Just that simple. <laughs> Each team fields a point-scoring skater called a jammer, whose objective is to lap as many of the opposing skaters as they can. The remaining skaters Whoa. are called blockers, and they work both offensively and defensively simultaneously to block the opposing jammer and to clear a path for their own jammer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So it's played on an oval track, which can be banked, so like sloped, or mm -hmm. more commonly, it's played on a flat track now. And mm -hmm. there are two 30-minute periods in about, and each period is broken up into two-minute units called jams. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Because you, you'll swap out after two minutes because it's very... Uh, physically intense, fast-paced, yeah. very exhausting. And for, the, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but for the listeners, this is something that you, you've you done. Yes, so I used to play roller derby. I stopped because it, it's a four-contact sport, so I, when COVID started, it was not happening at all. Ah, yeah. that'll do it. And then I got into other kinds of roller skating, so I didn't go back, but I still love it very dearly. 
I'm not going to get into any more of the rules beyond what I've just said because there are a lot. Like after two years yeah. of training, I still didn't know all of the rules. Really? Yeah. Wow. So um, I find many people know Roller Derby from a, a film called Whip It, which they skate, they basically skate around on this bank track dressed up. It's quite theatrical. And they punch each other and, mm-hmm. and trip each other over. That's not allowed. <laughs> 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 but Roller Derby is a physical sport. Yeah. Mm. There are like legal and illegal zones that you can use to hit someone or be hit on. So there's no like elbowing someone in the spine, for example, but you could shoulder them in the ribs. Oh my God. (laughs) I want the like, um, like mapping chart where it's like body part to target body part that's like okay and not okay. (laughs) Honestly, something like that probably exists. Um, (laughs) Ideally, if you're physically in contact with someone, you want to knock them out of bounds of the track because then they have to enter in behind you. Oh, yeah. So they lose Ah. uh, space, basically. Uh That makes sense. That makes sense. The history of Roller Derby is actually a lot, when I was looking into this, it's a lot earlier than i thought it was it dates back to the 1920s oh wow but that it referred really to endurance races then Mm -hmm. and then from the 1930s through to the 1960s something like the sport we recognize today kind of emerged on banked tracks mostly and it was developed and popularized by a man called leo seltzer who would tour with a like a roller skating troupe and put on shows for people. That's Whoa. really cool. Yeah. But there was much more of a race element with like more theatrics. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it then began to be televised in the late 1940s. Oh, wow. But popularity ultimately dwindled. And that sport kind mm-hmm. of like fell more or less into obscurity. People were still playing it, mm-hmm. but it wasn't mm-hmm. popular at all. Yeah. <laughs> then in the 1980s and 90s, they tried to kind of have a revival, a resurgence. Mm-hmm. And you had things like the roller games, which had a figure of eight track oh. uh, which sounds oh. awful and chaotic they had uh-huh. uh, and they had <laughs> and they had stunts like alligator pits well <laughs> oh um, my goodness well. <laughs> um and it, and it included like staged action storylines similar to basically sure, professional sure. wrestling yeah yeah i was gonna say but it wasn't actually until the 2000s that contemporary roller derby which is played on the mostly on a flat track was revived and that was in austin texas by the texas roller girls who are still one of the ah. best leagues in the world today yeah cool and then over the next decade hundreds of teams would be started around the world including the league i joined which is called london roller derby and that was founded in 2006 and these leagues are mostly and then and mostly still are all women's teams oh wow it's almost entirely a women and non-binary person sport there are very few uh, other uh, men's teams Um, and it really puts it in a very unique place in the world as a sport um, because it's it's a really grassroots player-led sport yeah 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 where women and non-binary people like they run the teams they they make up the all of the bodies the the funding bodies the rule bodies wow that's so cool i do find that's one of the reasons why it's taken less seriously as a sport as well Mm -hmm. but it is one it is the like fastest growing sport in popularity in the world so that's cool no longer an obscure sport hopefully and hopefully into it yeah the hope would it is that it's no longer a niche sport but i think the problem is the bat there's quite a barrier to entry yeah yeah i can understand that you have to learn you have to know how to roller skate before you can learn how to play the sport step one (laughs) be able to stand upright (laughs) if water polo can be a thing this can be a thing but i mean i i think those those aspects of the nicheness of it are also very beautiful in themselves Yeah. Yeah. yeah it takes a lot of dedication to get into 
mm-hmm. and stick with because you do have to learn a lot. And I can imagine mm-hmm. it being very intimidating for somebody to go into it for the first time as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was just a little bit on roller derby. Uh, that's that was. I just wanted to ease you guys in before I jumped into these next two oh sports. <laughs> what? What? So the ne- what? my next two sports I'm covering are wild, oh so wild. Oh. Okay, is this on the realm of like cheese rolling? Oh, <gasps> cheese roll is a great Ooh, sport. That's a great shout. <laughs> Honestly, you've got to think bigger than that. It's even weirder. <laughs> <laughs> so the next sport I'm going to tell you about is called Buzkashi, and it's Afghanistan's okay. national sport. Oh, okay. And despite that, I bet you've never heard of it. No. <laughs> so... Buskashi and Pashto translates to goat pulling. Right. Okay. Well. Okay. This is this is the one line description of Buskashi. Horse mounted oh players must attempt to put the carcass <gasps> of a goat in a goal. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Why? Well, you Why? know, it's, it's goat. The goat it is, is, better, is the ball. It's better. It's a carcass than it is alive. I will say that. That's actually a, a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's good that it's not a live goat. Yeah. For sure. Like. Yeah. Who who was the first person to do that? I mean, no. To be completely honest, in in a world of uh, farm animals, I this makes as much sense as fucking baseball, where you're standing around in the field uh, catching shit. And I guess right, like, you're on horses. There are goats on like like early ball games where you would just use like a sheep liver and throw it around or something. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. Actually, in, in relation well, to that, yeah. It, American football, they call it a pig skin, right? It's not yeah, anymore, yeah, yeah. but it used to be. Yeah. I do wish that it wasn't a dead goat, but like, oh, I also eat meat, so it's kind of like... <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like yeah, a... be a bit hypocritical of me to complain about it. Yeah. 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 So this was going to make a lot more sense in context. This began and was developed between the 10th and 15th centuries when nomadic Asian tribes yep. from China and Mongolia were spreading westward and the tribes were um, stealing cattle and goats from one another. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh! And so the game was developed off the back of these this kind of theft. It's like a <laughs> symbolic version of the theft? Kind That's of, so Yeah. Right? So, wow! So it's the national sport of Afghanistan, but it's versions of it have been taken to Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Pakistan. In Kyrgyzstan, it's called... Co- I learned recently from, from a TikTok that the stan suffix just is is basically the equivalent of land in yeah. um ah. english speaking nations oh, that's cool sorry just a quick side note no it's a good note um so in kyrgyzstan it's called kokburu and uh the rules are pretty clear in this version so it's 60 minute long split into three periods played in a field which is 200 meters long with two kazans mm-hmm. or basically big round goals on either end and you have four mm-hmm. riders from each team on the pitch at any time and it is very, very physical, very fast. Mm-hmm. There are a few rules, but mostly it's um, about grabbing the goat. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, in the Afghan version, mm-hmm. a Buskaji player is called a Chapandaz. And it's thought that a Chapandaz isn't properly mature in the game until they're at least in their 40s after years oh, wow. of practice. No fucking way. Yeah, because they need those years of practice wow. and ob- observation first. Because Whoa. horse riding is such like an intense and skillful yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. I really like this concept compared to like sports in Western culture where totally. you, yeah. you're, you're like past your prime in your mm-hmm. 30s. Mm-hmm. When it's like, when it's now it's like, I'm getting wiser. Yeah. yeah. Something I found really interesting about this was Buskashi is often considered a game of wealth and power, but not for the players, for the sponsor of the game who doesn't play. Oh. 
Dr. Whitney Azoy, an anthropologist and the author of Buskashi, Game and Power in Afghanistan, said, The man who can manage a Buskashi successfully gains enormous prestige. People speak for years of his achievement. Henceforth, he is known as someone who order events, achieves his ends and imposes his purpose on chaos. The sort of man to support in the real world in the hope of concrete spoils. All too often, however, the game boils over into fierce and bloody brawls. The sponsor is thereby disgraced in this public arena. Wow. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. There's this very kind of real world tie into the success of this game. Yeah. But we see it in Western culture as well, like oligarchs buying big sports teams. (laughs) Yeah. And there's kind of success relying on that. But it is also played in like rural Afghanistan where it seems to be less true. So they play Mm -hmm. a version of the game Mm. called Tudabarai. And the rules in this version are incredibly minimal. And the aim is just oh. often to keep possession of the goat carcass for as long as possible. <laughs> so you have things like boundaries are just decided by the landscape around you. Yeah. Punching, kicking, and even forcing players into rivers is all commonplace. And games can last several days, and sometimes with <laughs> oh. <laughs> sometimes with hundreds competing in a single match, and there are no teams. Oh my gosh! <laughs> oh, so it's just like. Winner takes all, one yeah. person with a go at the end of it. I like that. That is metal. I was I, like, that's so intense. That's intense. I love it. And also, aside from just being so metal, it is a really, it's really fun and interesting from like a game designy perspective, right? Like uh, the fact that like it, it can just be like the area from like this river to this house, yeah. or the fact that the rules can be so fast and loose, and also. It, the fact that it is so complex because you're on a, you're on a horse. Yeah, really interesting. Yes, yeah, I've, I've it's a it is. And <laughs> um, before I get onto the last one, I was going to talk about in detail. Here are some honorary mm-hmm. mentions, which are all of these are <laughs> uh, ep- episodes in the Netflix series Home Game. Okay. So Makapung Lampit from the Jembrana region of Bali is it's basically drag racing with water buffalo through a flooded rice field. Whoa! Yeah. I want to watch that. That sounds yeah. sick. Oh my god. This seems like probably the most wholesome one of the most wholesome ones of all of these. The people just seem super happy to do it, and the the buffalo were pretty chill as well. They just get to oh. run real fast through a rice field. <laughs> But also, there seems to be a lot of honour on it, yeah, um, yeah. like mm, competing. Mm. Um, we have the Highland Games, which uh, oh, yes. are, of course, from Scotland. And that's, this obviously combines cultural displays of like Scottish music and dance with tests of strength. Most mm-hmm. famously, the Cabotoss. Toss. And uh, if you don't know, that's where you, uh, the competitor is holding an upright log, like a full tree-sized log um, <laughs> yeah. balanced yeah. in their hands. <laughs> And then they have run forwards and toss it so it turns end over end. I love. So cool. <laughs> the last honorary mention is Catch Fetish, uh, which translates to voodoo wrestling. So okay. this, com- <laughs> this comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. And it's like a mix of WWE style wrestling showmanship with traditional uh-huh. African wrestling moves and old religious practices and mysticism. Oh, oh wow. yeah! So it's doing like it's like WWE, but with like religious kind of voodoo and yeah. If yeah. if the root of it wasn't like uh, capitalism, if it was <laughs> yeah. something some other, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very sh- it's all about showmanship. Um, yeah. So so mixed in with like kind of fighting styles, you have fire rituals, live animals, and witchcraft. It's like it's wow. insane. It looks wow. cool as fuck. So yeah, those are all really interesting. But the last one I'm going to talk about, <laughs> which I loved, is called Calcio Fiorentino or Calcio Storico. Calcio Storico literally translates to historic football. Oh, 
Okay. So it's an early form of football or soccer that originated during the Middle Ages in Italy. And the, the basics of the game, uh-huh. uh, this is from Wikipedia. This uh, all seems normal so far. Matches last 50 minutes and are played in a field covered in sand, twice as long as it is wide. Oh, whoa. A goal net runs the width of each end. So far, so good. Mm-hmm. Each team uh-huh. has 27 players. That's a lot of players. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm going to say a lot of Italian words now. Made up of four datori indietro, goalkeepers, three datori innanzi, fullbacks, five sconciatori, halfbacks, 50 innanzi or corridori, forwards. The captain and standard bearers, which is a flag bearer, uh, oh. They have a tent that sits in the center of the goal. Um, they don't act. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Wait. <laughs> Flag bearers. Okay. I, okay. I, I, no, I'm building this mental image one piece at a time. <laughs> that was it just took a second to process, yeah. but yes, I see they're there. They don't actively participate in the games, but they organize their own teams and kind of act as referees. And this is mainly to calm down their players to stop fights. <laughs> That's part of the game. Yeah. But it does seem that referees are largely decorative in this game. Yeah. So to start the game, a shot from a small cannon announces the start. Great. Amazing. Wow. Okay. And then the uh, the 15 corridori, which are the forwards, begin fighting in a wild mixed martial arts match. Punching, kicking. Oh, there it is. (laughs) Okay, so... Punching, kicking, tripping, hacking, tackling, and wrestling with each other in an effort designed to tie. That's my favorite. That's my favorite Doctor Seuss book. Punching, <laughs> kicking. <laughs> Sorry, please. They're continue. trying to um, tire out the opponent's defenses, um, and it often descends into like all-out brawls. They're basically what they're trying to do. The tactic that most teams go with is they try and pin and force into submission as many players as possible. Mm. And once enough players have been incapacitated, the other teammates then swoop forwards with the ball and put it in the goal. Forgot there was a ball for a second. Can I be honest? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So basically, the players, by any means necessary, will try and get the ball into the opponent's goal. Yeah, that's it. That's the sport. Another one that I am now desperate to actually see. Yeah. Yeah, that very, sounds incredible. Very... So this started in the 1400s. Wow. And, mm. and what I found really interesting is that it was reserved for aristocrats. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, they played it every night between Epiphany and Lent, which are two Christian holidays. Um, three popes have played the sport. <laughs> Get out. Yeah. Wow. Get out of town. <laughs> um, in the what? Vatican as well. Oh. Stop. <laughs> Stop. In 1574, Henry III of France attended a game that was put on in his honour during a visit to Venice. And the king is recorded as saying, too small to be a real war and too cruel to be a game. (gasps) Oh my god! Whoa! That's poetry! Wow! So you can imagine the kind of violence of this game. And today, the rules of Calcio Historico are basically the same. Do we know how many people participate? in the sport still because of the <laughs> level of potential to get hurt it's actually yeah. only mm-hmm. played now in one city in italy oh. one, once a year makes sense makes sense oh wow okay yeah. that makes sense so three games are played a year in a basically this beautiful old piazza in florence in the third week of june wow there are four teams from each quarter of the city yeah okay and that's wow. just because it's so 
so dangerous to play. They've, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they've banned um, sucker punches and kicks to the head due to potential fatality, but things like headbutting, choking, punching and elbowing are still allowed. <laughs> oh my God. But no one has ever died in modern culture historico. Get out of town. But they have Get out of town. Plenty of people have died in old, older versions. Yeah, of, of course sure. they have. But I mean, like, even, there are a lot of modern sports that can't say that. <laughs> That's true, actually. And But uh, one of the wild things about the game is no substitutions are allowed for injury <gasps> or expelled players. So, Ooh. And you get loads of injuries and expulsions during the game. So it's kind of like a, a knockout almost in some cases wow that's so interesting i really really recommend watching the home game episode about this i really really recommend playing this one day giving it a try <laughs> oh really... my god the, the people who play this don't get paid they're just normal people who have other jobs wow. the rest of the year wow. and they play like one or two games a year but they are yeah. so so passionate about the game <gasps> one one of the stories in the netflix series is a so you're only allowed to play the game if you are born in Florence. And um, oh. one man and his wife were living outside of Florence and he made them her come back into Florence to have her, the baby, her baby, so that it, he could no. choose... <laughs> he could choose to play Calcio Storico in the future if he wanted. Wow. Ooh. I thought football Boy, parents howdy. were bad, but uh, <laughs> this is... Wow. <laughs> That's a lot of dedication to a sport. Very, huh? very dedicated. Yeah. I think as I'm talking about this, it could seem like this is like a quirky like novelty, but I want to quote from a National Geographic article by Sam Borden, who mm. talked to a lot of the people who play Calcio Storico. It did not take long to realise that locals see it very differently from this quirky sports mm, novelty. Mm. Yeah. This isn't some kind of weird cosplay fight club, <laughs> though no one will ever deny the violence is appealing but rather an mm. event emblematic of Florence's spirit. Nico told me mm. back then that when he first participated in Calcio Storico, the sensation was nothing less than the feeling of being a man. Wow. So locals basically see it as like an incredibly great honour to play the game. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I come to the end of my section now, I do want to make sure that we kind of all take that idea away, that none of these sports are novelties for the people who play yeah. them. Mm, these sports mm, are inc mm. they're incredibly athletically challenging. They are deeply culturally meaningful, sometimes in a historical yeah. sense, like with Calcio Storico, or like with Roller Derby, about creating a new and inclusive sporting culture. Yeah, yeah. And all the while, that's why you're trying to be the very top of this uh, kind of athletic game. Uh, yeah, that's that's niche sports. Oh, thank Amazing. you so much. I'm glad you left out cheese rolling so I can do a whole misc topic on that another time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tom, do we have any little little reviews for her well where where could we possibly go to find reviews caroline oh my god me 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 i know me 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 ask me ella. Yes, ella. Is, is it review corner it sure is <laughs> let's go <laughs> everyone let's go Woo. uh so today's review comes from pomp one two three they left a review on Apple Podcasts, which you can do as well. Uh, and they said, <laughs> tickles that jiggly knowledge thing in my skull. I relate to that statement so much. Mm, yeah, <laughs> tickle, yeah. tickle my jiggly knowledge bits. 
<laughs> in my skull. Uh, as someone with a love for philosophy and science, I thoroughly love listening to this podcast. I'm only five episodes in, but I was hooked from episode one. Aww. I constantly tell people what I've learned and recommend this podcast to the people I talk about it with. Good luck with everything, and I hope to join in this type of work sometime in my future. Oh, we hope I so hope too. you do too. Yeah. Thank you so Aww. much. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> right then. Do we have any plugs or shout outs? I do have a little shout out actually Ooh. this time. I would like to shout out the Discord um, because especially whenever an episode drops in the podcast discussion channel, it's one of my favorite times yeah. because all the jokes especially with this last one all the jokes and the science stories that people just know yeah. uh and also the memes but uh -huh. also we had an actual archaeologist who works with carbon dating and confirmed that they enjoyed it and also tell some other stories about actually working with it and it, it's amazing so just a uh, shout out to all those folks who who write amazing jokes and tell great science stories yeah. after an episode thanks drops. discord if you'd like to join our discord server um there is a link to it on our website which is let's learn everything pod.com so check us out over there otherwise i'm tom lum person everywhere else uh <laughs> i have yeah i have a shout out it's a different shout out <gasps> because i want to shout out my <laughs> tiktok account which is at dr big science energy <laughs> no hold on <laughs> Oh, I have seen this actually. Yeah, because I saw that was where I saw your haircut, and I was just like, "Who is this person on my for you page?" Oh my god! Yeah, Doctor Big Science Energy on TikTok and Ella Hubbard on Twitter. Oh, I'm glad you got rid of the underscores. Finally, you're living an underscore free life. I like the underscores. I can't read my own name now. <laughs> you well, you've entered the Lumperson trap. <laughs> <laughs> I think it reads. It reads. <laughs> oh, I love Lumpy it Tom. <laughs> Caroline, did you say your handle? Are we ready? Uh, We're done. Shout out to myself. I'm Caroline the Bug on uh, TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. So, this episode, we have learnt that we have no clue what the science of homosexuality is, but a lot of animals do it, so who cares? We. <laughs> <laughs> We learnt that storing data in DNA probably won't revolutionise our music listening experiences right now, but maybe kids of the future are in a chance of that. And we also learnt that there is a huge amount of respect to be given to the people who run around with dead goats. <laughs> yeah. And we all really want to watch that happen. And join us next time, where we'll learn about everything. Everything! 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 And uh, happy Pride Month! Woo! Woo! Let's Learn Everything is independently produced and hosted by Ella Hubber, Tom Lum, and Caroline Roper. Editing and music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lum. Do you guys want to hear my bad joke that I had written and said of that more natural end? Go on. Go on. But it's, po <laughs> it's so oh, stupid. No. But it's possible that we could use DNA to store songs for a, for a future where nobody remembers what an iPod is. Which, given Gen Z, is probably like next month. Am I right? Oh, oh thank God you didn't do God. that. Um, but no, we can <laughs> maybe, make. We maybe can, we you can should have records. gone to that VidCon seminar. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but no, like we could make records that live long past human civilization. But given Gen Z, it'd probably be full of TikTok dances. Am I right? Oh, <laughs> oh my god! The fact that you wrote this and then wrote a oh, second bit. Oh, I wrote two bit. jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I tell you, I. <laughs> There's not I chickened a out. Bit. I'm not ready for no, no, it. No, no, no. It's it's if you look at my notes between the jokes, I wrote um asterisk laugh track and I thought about <laughs> playing one. No, that was Hold so on, I funny. have it. Please. Hold Tom. on, here we are. It would be full of TikTok dances, am I right? Ah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, we're all wow. so tired, Tom. <laughs> tired of your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>